Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. Your host, Michael Fragan, Phil Goldfeder, still away on that extended Pesach vacation here on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com. And today is uh, Yom HaShoah, Holocaust Remembrance Day. And uh, we do take a moment to remember the six million. Um, I did see a Facebook post uh, yesterday, and then I actually got an email from my good friend, uh, the mayor of, Bra- of Great Neck, New York, Dr. Pedram Brawl, on the North Shore of Long Island, that they are actually going to be sounding a siren at 1 p.m., uh, you know, Israeli style, as they do in Israel, the siren goes. A lot of volunteer fire departments throughout the country use like an air raid type siren, the same thing that they have in Israel, uh, in order to alert their members when there's a fire emergency. So the Great Neck Fire Departments are going to be sounding a siren at 1 p.m. today for Yom HaShoah. It's actually a nice idea. Maybe something we should have tried to do here in the five towns. Um, a little late, maybe a note for next year. Uh, but uh, those on the North Shore, in the North Shore communities of, uh, of Great Neck and in the Great Neck Peninsula, uh, kudos to you for taking time to very publicly remember the... Six million Jews who perished in the Holocaust. And of course, you know, we need to look no further than uh, a similar butchery going on right now in Syria. Obviously, we can never commit, compare it to the genocide, uh, the Hitler's obsession with exterminating the Jewish people. That's not what's going on in Syria. But heinous. Weapons of mass destruction, gassing of people, gassing of your own people. You know, that's one of the incredible things about these uh, crimes against humanity is that sometimes they're done against your own people. And it's just, it's so shocking to see these pictures um, of what's transpiring in in Syria, really, literally... Uh, you know, minutes from the border of Israel. And Israel is uh, taking retaliatory strikes against, or, well, they want to admit that, of course, but most of the world thinks and believes that Israel has chosen to retaliate against Iranian military buildup within Syria. And that, of course, leads us to politics, and, of course, this show is about politics, and uh, I know we have to be solemn and somber, um, and the politics, of course, is serious, but you know, the president yesterday on Twitter decided that he was going to telegraph his intentions to bomb Syria, the bombs are coming, and then there was a whole walk back about, because it didn't happen yet, and, of course, he had criticized previous administrations for telegraphing their intentions. And then this morning tweeted, well, they're coming, but I'm not going to say exactly when they're coming. Could be today, could be tomorrow, could be whatever. Um, I don't know. You know, I, I just, I, I'm, I'm kind of at the point I just can't figure out what's what's going on in our government. I mean, I can... You know, we can see the writing on the wall a little bit as far as Paul Ryan's retirement. We have a bunch of things to discuss there as far as what's going on in Congress and 
what might happen at the end of the year. And then, of course, Michael Cohen's office being raided, the president's personal lawyer. I can't stress how extraordinary that is, the fact that that happened this week. Mike Pompeo, the CIA director, going to go before Congress for a confirmation hearing to be Secretary of State. And that'll probably go through. Uh, I, I mean, I would say it's most likely to go through, although we'll have to see how many Democrats go along with it. It's really the one opportunity for Democrats to kind of air their grievances on foreign policy. And if you look at, you know, I think a relevant question is how relevant is the State Department anymore? Because Rex Torreson was so sidelined when it came by, by President Trump. And as I said before, humiliated, really, when it came down to it. And um, just a number of issues and things going on within our political firmament. Uh, we got some interesting things going on in New York uh, between the governor and the mayor. New York State enacted a budget, and there are winners and losers there. Special elections coming up uh, here in New York State as well. There are always elections going on, and there are some elections going on going to be coming up in Arizona. And, of course, the primaries for the November elections are upon us as well. So let's pick it up. And uh, I know I'm going a little bit slowly, uh, you know, started off in that mood. But one thing I want to start off with very quickly this morning is what I think is just extraordinary, really a pass being given to Democratic politicians who make anti-Jewish comments. And, you know, we've seen it before. And I actually, I don't want to say there's blame to go around. I mean, we have Republicans. I mean, does do Republicans, do Republicans, it's a debate whether Republicans and Democrats, you have to respond to every stupid thing somebody in your party says. And do you have to c- condemn that? Is is an obligation of every politician to do that? You know, I think one of the things that Paul Ryan probably got tired of, of every morning having to go ahead and explain the president's tweets and I don't know why he has an obligation to do that. Do you agree? Do you not agree? That's not really what he wanted. But does everybody need to go ahead and a politician of your party who you may or may not have a relationship with says a stupid thing? Do you have to go ahead and condemn it? And, you know, this kind of happened in Charlottesville. Does every Republican need to kind of disagree with the president on his take on Charlottesville that there were good people on both sides? But... This past week, uh, a Democratic Assemblywoman from Brooklyn, actually represents Crown Heights, a woman by the name of Diana Richardson, went before a community board meeting and made what I believe are just extraordinarily anti-Jewish comments. I don't know, anti-Semitic, but you know, I mean, anti-Jewish. They asked her, somebody complained about people knocking on her door, knocking on their door, offering their money for their apartments, for their you know housing and saying... And her response was, it's probably the Jews. Now, take that in for a second. Here you have a sitting elected official, one who says that she has a relationship with the Jewish community, represents a sizable Jewish population. And if you're upset about gentrification and you're upset about people going out of their home, being offered a lot of money for their homes, it's debatable whether that's really an issue. But is your response, is your knee-jerk response to this, it's probably the Jews? I mean, let that sink in for a second. It's an elected official 
who sits as a lawmaker in Albany, and her response was, it's the Jews. It's the Jews' fault. If you're upset about it, it's the Jews. It's Yom HaShoah today, folks. This is the kind of thing that you had in the 1930s leading up to the demonization of the Jewish people. And I don't want to give it and say that's the, lo- the logical extension coming up is the Holocaust. Of course it's not. But that kind of rhetoric, that kind of feeling is just outrageous. And how many Democrats step forward to condemn this woman? Nobody. I mean, yes, Lou Fidler, who was a, a former city councilman, uh, was there as a representative, and he blew the whistle and it ended up in the New York Post. Apparently, the assemblywoman had the mics turned off before she got started, so she knew that she was going to say some controversial things. And Fiddler was, was outraged, rightly outraged. Anybody in the audience should have been outraged. But she didn't stop there, Diana Richardson. She decided that she said she was, according to reports, that she was sleep-deprived because she was up late debating the budget because the Jewish senator from Southern Brooklyn, Simcha Felder, had kept the budget process open. Now, we, many of us know that, this is, uh, that Felder was arguing for protections for yeshivas as far as curriculum and curriculum oversight. Debate of that is for a different day. But Richardson decided not to identify Simcha Felder as a senator from Brooklyn, as a colleague, as a colleague in the legislature, the Jewish senator from Southern Brooklyn. That was what Diana Richardson said. Now, Governor Cuomo and Mayor de Blasio and other assorted elected officials, they get a whiff of anti-Semitism on the right, of somebody making a comment on the right, the alt-right. Oh, maybe it's a Steve Bannon. Steve Bannon's an anti-Semite. Donald Trump's an anti-Semite. All these guys are... Where is the outrage here? Where is the calls on Diana Richardson to resign? Does she belong representing the people of the state of New York? If the response that she gives to a constituent who's upset is it's the Jews' fault? It's just shocking. And so many of us should be outraged by this. This is a sickening thing. And she didn't even apologize. She said, well, I'm sorry if some of my comments were taken she didn't even address the substance of the fact that, you know, it's the old, well, some people may have been offended, so, you know, I, I was sorry if I offended anybody. No! You made comments that are racist, that are anti-Semitic. Turning around and blaming a certain people, a certain ethnic group, a certain religious group for something when you actually have absolutely no idea what happened, but you're saying you're casting blame on them just because of who they are. That is the textbook version of racism or anti-Semitism. Where is the outrage? Every Democratic politician should be going. And the only people who are calling on this woman, on the, Diana Richardson to resign are Republicans. Chairman Ed Cox of the Republican Party called on her to resign. Others have seen a couple other calls for her to resign. But I, as far as I've seen, it's been from 
Republicans. And that makes it political, and it shouldn't be a political issue. This just should not be political. Okay, the big, big political story of the week. Paul Ryan, the sitting House Speaker, who has said over and over he never wanted to be Speaker, he never wanted the job, has decided to retire. Now, what does this mean politically? Number one, I think it's about the 43rd, 45th sitting Republican who is decided to hang up his hang up their spikes, as they say, and get out of town. Um, number two, so that's just extraordinary. Number two is it's like the you know captain just abandoning ship. I think to a certain degree, a lot of people have kind of resigned to the idea that the Republicans are going to lose the House. And I know a lot of folks out there they say, well, no, it's not going to happen. And I know that I've said it's going to be very difficult. It might not happen. But I think at this point, based on where we're headed, based on the increased number of problems and scandals going on within the administration, the turmoil, the lack of the personnel issues that it just looks like. I mean, you can deny that there's chaos, but you can't deny, I mean, more firings this week. Uh, Tom Bossert, the Homeland Security Advisor, just out the door, and there are rumors that others are going to be out the door. And it's just, you know, one after another. It's like... You know, you're just, the, the headlines are constantly, this is what it is. And I don't think the trade war with China is going to benefit the president or the Republican Party in a lot of states, particularly agricultural states, where a lot of their, uh, a lot of their goods that are exported to China, such as food goods, are now go- not going to, no longer be ex- you know, exported and Prices are probably going to drop, and that's going to hurt a lot of it. So I think 43 retirements from House GOP members lost in the Ryan Shuffle was the fact that uh, lost in the Ryan Shuffle was the fact that uh, another con- congressman from Florida, uh, Dennis Ross from the 15th district in the Tampa suburbs, uh, he also decided to retire yesterday. And uh, the Cook Political Report, nonpartisan political report put 15 House seats now in favor of the Democrats, uh, has shifted 15. There are 80 Republican-held seats that have the potential to be competitive compared to just 16 seats for Democrats in the Cooks race. Now, it's a little bit skewed because, remember, the Republicans had been so successful in gaining the House seat, that's usually what's going to happen. You know, the party that has successful in one election, the next election, some of those marginal members, those marginal seats they picked up, those are immediately going to be vulnerable. Um, the third point about Paul fund, about Paul Ryan is that he is probably the best fundraiser that the Republicans have ever had. The guy raised $54 million this cycle. I mean, it's just an astounding number. And he's been able to, will his, uh, anybody be able to pick up that baton? And the other thing, of course, is now there's going to be a leadership battle within the Republican Party. Steve Scalise, Kevin McCarthy, both intended to go for the speakership. Will everything now be colored by that rivalry between the two of them. Kevin McCarthy tried once to become a speaker when, before Paul Ryan couldn't muster the votes. To re- he wanted to replace John Boehner. Couldn't do it. Paul Ryan was the consensus candidate. And, um, you know, just a couple, I think, ideas here, just with regard to the what's going to happen with the House. Um, the way, you know, a lot of these ratings historically, if you look at Cook, and they're usually pretty good, um, the way they rate is solid, likely, and lean, and toss-up. It's four categories. So solid seats, more than 99% of the time, are run by are won by the solid, meaning Republican or Democrat. Likely seats, 85% of the time, by whoever's favored at this point in the cycle. Okay? 
That's since 2006. That's in the last 12 years, last four cycles. Okay, leans 70 percent of the time and toss ups 45 percent of the time by the party that holds the seat. That's according to Cook's own ratings. I mean, 45 percent is so. If something goes to a toss up. The person who holds the seat usually loses. Okay, that means they usually lose that seat. And as I said, Cook has rated 80 seats as toss-ups. So, I'm sorry. Let's go back for a second. Okay. The current Cook projections suggest 220 seats for Democrats, 215 for Republicans after the election. Not, I'm sorry, it's not 80. Okay. Republican, Democrats pick up 24 seats, and they only need 23. Now, that doesn't, and that doesn't even account for, let's say, the wave. You know, a wave means a lot, everything breaks one way. This is just the, when, they, when they're talking about the ratings of the toss-ups, you know, one against the other. So it's just, um, it, it's not good news if you're a Republican like me uh, to try and look at the world and try and figure out where does the party go from here. Uh, you know, Paul Ryan... Being an establishment, I know we talk about the establishment, the insurgent wing. Uh, you know, I, I have certainly expressed my doubts with regard to President Trump and his conservative bona fides, but I think he has actually governed as a conservative, uh, despite a lot of the, the noise on the outside that I don't like. But overall, it's been a pretty conservative agenda. But it's really been Paul Ryan's agenda to a large degree. And without him there as an, a policy guy, uh, Mitch McConnell, not a policy guy. Donald Trump and nobody in the White House really a policy guy who is kind of guiding the Republican Party. And, you know, a lot of Republicans clearly who are hanging it up, particularly in the House. I mean, just senior members, uh, Paul, uh, as I said, uh, Jeb Henserling, uh, Bob Goodlatte, Rodney Freelinghausen, Paul Ryan. And these are major, major names within the Republican Party and just choosing to just get out. Uh, clearly, there's a discomfort with what's going on with the party and where the base is and how the base has lost touch or how the members, I should say, not, it's not the base lost touch. The members have obviously lost touch. I mean, if you can't adjust, I guess that that's, uh, you know, that's rough. I mean, if you can't adjust in politics and you don't know where your constituency is, that's a rough thing for any politician. And um, I agree with that. I mean, who is to blame for that? You can't really blame the voters. Um, you could just kind of say, I'm not going to, I can't be in the game anymore, essentially. So a couple of things just with regard to, you know, where this kind of goes for, from here. I mentioned Tom Bossert. Now, is this a real thing? Oh, Tom Bossert, most people have no idea who Tom Bossert is. But Tom Bossert, was pushed out by John Bolton and the president's kind of like the new shiny toy. John Bolton comes in and we all love John Bolton, particularly because of Israel and a fierce opponent of Iran, a fierce defender of Israel went to the United Nations as UN ambassador in a recess appointment in the Bush administration and was an you know, absolute champion for many issues that many of us care about. Um, but when you think about it, you have to, and now maybe Bosser and Bolton don't get along. But from what has been reported, he is the 32nd senior staff member 
to have exited since uh, you know what's called senior staff by uh, by those who study these things, and the Brookings Institution keeps account of this. So the 32nd member of the senior staff, there are only 65 senior staff positions within the White House, what's considered senior staff. That means essentially half of the senior staff members have left since this presidency started. That's, a, that's an astounding turnover. That's an astounding lack of continuity. It's an astounding lack of expertise. And we know that many, there are others that are currently, you know, on the fence you know, kind of waiting maybe that they're going to be, you know, tossed. I mean, John Kelly, you know, reports over and over that he's that he's going to go and and the like. So it's, you know, there's still no communications director. And it's uh, it's difficult. If you're trying to be a member of Congress dealing and trying to get, unless you speak to the president on a regular basis, which most of them don't, how do you get a handle on what the White House is doing? You don't never know what the president's going to tweet in the morning. Now that's very now that works for the president, but that doesn't necessarily work for the people who are trying to catch up with him, to trying to work with him. Doesn't necessarily work with for them, and so it's almost impossible to follow that kind of moving target. And it's the same thing with the Mueller investigation. I mean, look what's going on with Mueller. Uh, the you know w- he goes ahead and he's extraordinary step of referring a case to to the U.S. Attorney of the Southern District to raid the offices of the president's personal lawyer, Michael Cohen. And we're going to leave Michael Cohen aside. I can't figure the guy out. I don't understand the whole, the bombast there. You know, if you're that type of guy, just stay quiet and don't engage. You know, if you're behind-the-scenes fixer guy, there's no reason for you to have any public profile, but we'll leave that aside. So Mueller declares war essentially on Trump. And I think that that's, I think that's it. I mean, Mueller decides, you know, he's going to go for it, raise the offices of the lawyer. Uh, in order to get that, I imagine they had something. They went before a judge to get a search warrant. There had to have been something. I mean, look, you know, the justice system has, <laughs> is not necessarily always fair, and it's not always necessarily all about justice. I mean, I don't want to be too cynical about it, but I will say that generally the judges are not going to, from what you know has been said pretty much by everybody, judges are not going to grant a search warrant to a lawyer without some pretty good probable cause. And what's happened here is, you know, this is a, a declaration of war essentially against the president and he is now saying, well, you know, I might fire him. I might fire him. You know, but he's told all, all the Republicans in Congress they don't want to deal with it. They don't want to talk about it because they've, they don't want to, they, of course, can't abide by the idea that the president would subvert the justice system in such a way. So they've said, well, he's not going to fire Mueller. But now he has said that he is. So how now you kind of have to answer the question. He's actually forced the president's now forced every Republican to kind of choose, you know, they have to respond in a certain way. And now some Republicans in the Senate is actually going to consider legislation to protect Mueller. Now, the House probably won't pass it, but it would be quite extraordinary if the president go ahead and fired Mueller anyway and provoke this type of crisis. Even Roger Stone, who is kind of way out there politically and has who has, I think, by all accounts, you might not like him, and 
you might not think he's a good force in politics and you might not think he's good for the country, but Roger Stone has pretty good political instincts over the years, has said that the president should not fire Bob Mueller. It will provoke a constitutional crisis. It will provoke a backlash that he won't be able to recover from. And most people have also said that. I mean, I think the words used by a certain senator was political suicide. This will be suicide for the president in order to fire Bob Mueller. And it will be. I mean, there's no question. I mean, the problem is overall, as a private business, and we see this from the president's tax returns. He never, in a million years, probably has said, well, well I'm never going to re- release my business records. I'm never going to release my tax returns. I'm a private businessman, and I have no obligation to whatsoever. And he probably doesn't, and he's right about that. But then when you go into the pressure cooker, the fishbowl of being president, it's expected. These things are, you're expected to face scrutiny. And I don't know, there's some kind of shock by the Trump family, there's some kind of shock by the president that this is going on, that people are demanding these types of information, and that there are a lot of levers in order to get there. And the president has also been very litigious over the years, and there are lots of lawsuits out there that he's uh, had to, you know, that he's initiated many of them. But, you know, a lot of times when they've gotten, from what I've read, a lot of times when they've gotten close to getting information, they have settled. They did by that with the Trump University case that we've seen, and that's probably the only, you know only the tip of the iceberg as far as what we know. But you know, this is these are unusual times, my friends, very unusual times, and it's really hard to know exactly you know where this goes, where the story goes. Uh, will Bob Mueller be there in you know by the time we do this show next week? Actually, no show next week because of Yamat's boot. But, you know, back to, uh, you know, back to the idea that if you're, if you're a Republican in Congress, it's almost impossible to be on message with this. So you just don't say anything. And that's really what comes down to. And it works for the president. It works. This seat of the pants style works for the president. It's worked for him. It's exciting. People want to. They're tuning in because they really want to know. And, you know, when Trump treats, yes, when the president treats yesterday, there's going to be an attack on Syria, it dominates the news. And then today he says, well, I never said when it would take place. It's going to happen. Now, when you think about it, it's just, you know, militarily, it probably makes no sense. I mean, Syria can prepare, Russia can prepare, Iran can prepare. Why are you telegraphing this? It's just, uh, and that was always the president's own criticism of others that they do, that they were telegraphing their military actions. It's just stupid. But yet he did it. Anyway, but usually when it comes to these tweets, and I've said this before many times in the show, there's usually some kind of method to it. And if even if the method is just to dominate the news cycle, which he really does every day, uh, it works for him politically. The question is, does it work for others politically? And long term, I think the president, or at least short term, I mean 2018, which is essentially the long term, is that the president needs to worry about keeping control of Congress. Because if... And now it's almost looking like when Democrats come into control of the House of Representatives, it's a better than it's a better than even money bet that he will face impeachment. And uh, it's not going to be a pretty sight. It's not going to be good for the country. It's not going to be good for anybody. It's not going to be good for Republicans. It's not going to be good for Democrats. We don't need this. We have enough problems in this country that we need to deal with. So uh, in closing, I just want to say, uh, you know, just go back to. The fact that it is Yom HaShoah and the fact that it is, we've seen this increasing amount of anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitic incidents in New York State were up 90% in 2018. 
between 2016-2017. That's, you know, a terrible number. And we see it, we see rhetoric, we see whether it's anti-Israel rhetoric on the left that has veers into anti-Semitic rhetoric, whether it's the BDS movement, which is anti-Semitic, and whether it's just white nationalism or racism on the right. It's uh, the fact that, you know, we still have to... uh, you know that we we st- we have to be vigilant. We have to be. We have to call it out. We have to call it out as as we see it, when we see it, not as we see it, but when we see it, and have to think about it. And you know, we, uh, in particularly the Orthodox community, sometimes get an added dose of it, um, of stereotypical behavior, rhetoric, and uh, I would say anti-orthodoxy that comes sometimes, and it's a. Uh, you know, we, we, we face that on a regular basis. And, you know, of course, it's most unfortunate on the society in which we live. And we sometimes face it even from liberals, self-described liberals. They don't like, uh, you know, they don't like orthodoxy and uh, therefore have uh, some less bigoted views when it comes to the orthodox. So that's it for this week here on the Malcolm Siegel Network. Stay tuned for Jew in the City Speaks with Allison Josephs. See you in two weeks, hopefully back with my partner, Phil Goldfeder.